Let's turn now to the Song of Solomon and chapter 5. This comes immediately before Isaiah's prophecy. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, page 681. And we'll read from verse 2 to 9. Chapter 5, verse 2 to 9. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice. My beloved was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my spouse, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. She responds to him, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my veil from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. And the daughters of Jerusalem ask her this question. What kind of beloved is your beloved? O most beautiful among women. What kind of beloved is your beloved? That you thus adjure us. This part of the song opens with the words in verse 2. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. And the beloved calls to his bride to open the door for him. And then there's a series of events in which she doesn't respond. And she says in verse 6, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. Or that can be translated, my heart leaped when he spoke. It moved her heart. It went, her heart went out to him, or it leaped or was stirred when he spoke. We saw a little of this song last week, and we saw the second of these songs. And we've said about this song that it's a song of love, and it was written by Solomon, who wrote a thousand and five songs altogether. But the title of this song tells us that it was, by his estimation, the greatest song that he wrote. The opening of the book says, this is the song among all songs, the song of Solomon. And we can be sure that it is the greatest song he wrote because it was chosen by the Holy Spirit to be put as a book of Scripture 
for the people of God until the Lord returns. This song was written for all of the people of God. And the fact that we know and believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and composed by the Holy Spirit, then we know this song was too. That these are the thoughts of God about love and especially about his love to us and ours to him. Obviously, it's an allegory, and in it there's a couple, and many people look at this book and um, apply it to a human love between a man and a woman, and it's obviously based upon that, but it rises far above it. And the beloved is perfect in the song. The king is perfect. All of the problems in the song and the distances are all caused by the bride and never by the king. So that tells us immediately this is not a normal human relationship. And in a human relationship, those problems are a lot more balanced. It would not be an honest insertion into scripture by the Holy Spirit if we believe this is a manual for marriage, but the husband is always faithful and the bride is not. That's obviously a picture of God and his church. Israel knew that. Every prophet told them that God was a faithful husband and they were an unfaithful bride. So even the Jewish people would read this song knowing it was about God and his people. They still know that to this day and read it at Passover. So when we see the perfection of the king, that should alert us immediately to the fact that this is about God and specifically about the Son of God who comes from God as a man and woos his bride and brings Christians to himself in love for nearness and fellowship. Um, Solomon is the son of David. He, he transcended what David had done as great as what David did was. Solomon went beyond what his father had done. He took the throne in peace and righteousness and reigned over a larger area. He built the temple of God and all the kings around him submitted to him and paid tribute to him. It's a great picture of Christ. So we, when we think of Solomon loving his bride here, we have a very unique Old Testament beautiful book that we can go into to learn something of the beauty and poetry of the love that the king, the son of David, has for his bride as he reigns in peace and righteousness. You'll see immediately how this uh, reveals Christ. It reveals the son of David who came to Israel to woo her and who wooed the Gentiles to himself in love. And we saw that um, in this song, each part begins with a distance that tells us something about the Christian life and about our relationship to Christ. Each part, as it progresses, it begins with a distance that's happened because that is a diary of our lives as Christians. We do not begin and grow and come to know Christ more and more in a straight line. There are um, ebbs and flows in our relationship to God because of our sin, but because of his wisdom too, he tests us and often he'll remove his obvious presence from us or from the church 
and he has reasons for doing that. Um, but each song begins with that break, and we saw how that happened in the second song in chapter 2, that um, it begins with her um, in her place, with large mountains between her and the Lord Jesus Christ, who she says she can now see, and he's coming like a gazelle or a deer running over these mountains to come to her. So it begins with in that dramatic way, with them being far apart, but he is coming to her, and he speaks comfort and love to her, and we saw that. This song here, which is really the fourth song, begins in a similar way, and I, because uh, my heart has been taken up with these things, I, I want to um, open out a few more things uh, with this, because I believe that that's what God wants us to hear. This song begins with a similar uh, problem. You'll see that she's asleep, uh, her heart is awake, and it is the voice she hears of her beloved, and he is knocking because he has been away. So she is his uh, bride, but she is in bed, alone, um, away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with that picture. It starts with the believer asleep. Chapter 3 begins with her on her bed, seeking the one she loves, and she sought him but could not find him. Chapter 3, verse 1. Here we have it again in our chapter. And the picture here is, I mean, the rest of the song, they're active and they're together. There's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of walking together in the vineyards and the gardens. But in this song we're looking at, it begins with her alone. And you should immediately notice that, that she is alone and there is no word of where he is. And there's a key as well, it tells us that it is night. At the end of verse 2, he says his locks are dripping with the dew of the night. And in the Song of Solomon, any time that it's night, she is alone. The, The night is not a beautiful, comforting thing in the Song of Solomon. It is a time of danger. It is a time of loneliness. It is a time of isolation. And you'll see that when she goes out to find him, the watchmen in the city abuse her and beat her because she's out at night. So the night isn't a good thing in the Song of Solomon. And actually, um, in the chapter that we looked at last week, the key, one of the key verses to the whole song, the theme verse, is at the very end of chapter 2 when he says, until the day breaks or the day is finished and the shadows flee away, turn my beloved like a gazelle upon the mountains of separation. And that, um, that verse there is telling us that although he keeps coming to her, her prayer is, until the day comes and the shadows are gone, please keep coming to me until we can be permanently together. And that is the Christian life. We are in a world in which there are constantly mountains of separation between us and God. Even though we're in him and we know him, there there's at least a physical separation. You've never seen God. And you've never seen the Lord Jesus Christ. That's there anyway. But it can, can become worse spiritually. We are in a fallen world where we will experience isolation, pain, and uh, a lack of assurance and certainty about our relationship with Christ. It's what she calls here a world of shadows. 
Psalm 23 says that, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, and thy rod and staff comfort me. This is a world with shadows covering it and moving. It's not daytime. The daytime comes when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, and the sun of righteousness arises and floods the new heavens and earth with the light of the Lamb of God. We are not in the middle of the day here. We are in an evening, a time of shadows. In our chapter, she's not just in an evening and a time of shadows. It is night. It is dark. She's safe in her room. The door is locked and she's alone. And there's a picture of her sleeping. And we shouldn't think of that as just a beautiful picture of her resting. Um, Her sleep here is not a good thing. She's asleep, her heart's kind of awake, and she hears a voice, and when he comes, as we're just about to see, she doesn't get up to let him in. The sleeping here is a spiritual laziness. The sleeping here is a sluggishness. She should be, when her beloved's away, she should be ready to receive him back and anxious for his return. But when he comes, it finds her unready. And she's asleep and sluggish, in and out of sleep, lying on her bed, and she is out for the night. And when he comes, he can't awaken her properly. So we see there that sleepiness and sluggishness that is so often spoken of in the scriptures, speaking of us, that when the Lord returns, he will find five bridesmaids ready with their oil and five not ready in the church and they're all asleep and Christ warns them at the end of that parable and says keep watch so the Christian must always be keeping watch the Christian must always be looking for the presence of Christ but what's happened here is that Christ is absent and she just accepts and becomes used to the absence of the power and presence of the Lord And she's quite content to just fall asleep. And how often that happens in the church. And how often that happens in your heart and my heart. We're just too used to the lack of the power and presence of God. We are far too used to um, not seeing widespread conversion and regeneration and revival. We're too used to um, a routine that in church that doesn't um, startle us or convict us or shake our lives too much. And we can be lulled by Satan into a, a lethargy and a sleep. Now the Christian's heart will never truly fall asleep to the point that it actually dies. Her heart is awake. She's asleep, but her heart is still in some way aware. But she's asleep. And she's there unconscious, alone, uh, and not uh, fully alert and fully aware of her spiritual condition. That's just, you can study that in your own time to see how that all works out, but in each song she starts this way. It's not good, and he has to come. And he does come, like we saw last week in the other context. He comes, and He comes again with his voice. And I'm telling you that again. Christ 
repeated many of his parables. And in the Bible, if God wants to emphasize something to us, he repeats it. And I'm repeating that to you. And we'll see a couple of other things with it. But you notice the voice. And I wonder, as we looked at it last week and you heard these things, I wonder how attentive you were this week to to see or hear the voice of God after hearing what we did last week. Did Christ come to you over those mountains or are those mountains too substantial for you to hear his voice? He comes this time again. It is the voice of my beloved. And when he comes with his voice, like we saw, he uses his providence and his scripture and he arrests us and lets us know that he's there, that there is a God, that there is a Christ, and that he communicates. And we're, we're in no mistake when he speaks. We, it, is, um, it cannot be fully ignored. When he speaks, it is clear. How can God speak to someone and, and for them to be able to be unaware of it or ignore it? When someone as great as God speaks, it will be heard. And he speaks in his word and in his providence. He, he comes with the preaching of scripture. He comes with the reading of scripture. He comes in the, the prayer life, the active prayer life of a Christian. He comes with signals in your situation, your physical and family providences and your work providences, and your daily mundane providences. What happens with your car, and where you go, and who you meet. He is always actively involved in the life of the Christian, and he finds a way to speak. So please watch for it. Please be aware that God can speak, and keep your eyes open, and desirous to hear that voice. Paul tells us that when God speaks, when he spoke to the Thessalonians through Paul's preaching, it was not in word only, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Christ's about to wake her up, and when Christ speaks, it's not in word only. It's not in interesting Bible study. It's not that you just read the word as we've done, and now you hear it being expounded. It is not that you just retain it in your mind. And think about it. When Christ speaks through the operation of the Spirit in the preached or read Word, then the Word comes to life. It has force. It has a fragrance to it. It has a power to it that that meets your soul and it almost clicks into your soul like a jigsaw piece. Because you were made to hear the voice of God. Remember that. That's what you're made for. You're made to know Him. And when he speaks, it should fit into your soul. It should be received. And it comes with power and reality, as Paul says. So please watch for that. Watch not only for the red word, but watch for the voice. The written word and the voice are not always the same thing. You can read this book front to back and God may not speak to you. Do you know that? It has to come in the hand of the Holy Spirit 
to your receptive heart. It has to be based on relationship, not just information. This is about a loving marriage. And when he comes, he comes with all the reality and tenderness and appeal of the husband. And he speaks to her and it carries with it its own reality. And you'll see that it's real because she hears. She hears the voice. And what does it say? Well, she hears the voice. He knocks at the door at the same time. And in the middle of verse 2, he says, Open for me. Open for me. My sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. What a wonderful thing that he's given us this song in the word and that it reveals Christ to us coming with his word and saying to us as fallen sinners, as weak, failing, even disobedient Christians, that his response is to come and say, open, open. He's outside and he wants to come inside in a fuller way. You're here as a Christian and you know the Lord. You read the word. He wants more. You believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in you as a Christian. But the Bible and Christian history, the history of the church shows us that there are very great varying degrees to which we can experience our relationship to Christ. We can stand afar off with a formal faith that saves and justifies, but then there's a life of communion to enter into with the Lord. All Christians do not know God the same way or the same extent. There are believers in history and probably even today that experience a depth and a nearness of communion with Christ because they pursue that. They experience it in a way that you you perhaps have never even heard of. Or me. We may never have experienced it to that depth, but I need to know and you need to know that it can be there and it can increase and increase and increase. Remember what Jesus said or what John said about the way Christ viewed him. He never named himself John. He said, I was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he loved them all. But he's described that way because there was a special bond between Christ and John. And that is because of how John responded to Christ all of the time. And on the Last Supper, they weren't all leaning on the chest of Christ. John was leaning upon his chest. Like the woman will end up doing in this song. Do you see that? Peter was passionate. Nathaniel was intelligent and spiritual. John had the affection and the love. Read his his gospel and his letters. This is a, a man who was well in touch with the love of Christ. And he knew something of this. Open for me. He wrote Revelation and we read it in the call to worship. John wrote what Christ told him on that island when Christ knocked on the door of the church and said, whoever opens the door and lets me in, I will eat with him and he will sup with me. Here we have the exact same thing. John could have written this song. Open for me. Oh, brother and sister, what a wonderful thing that Christ has a desire for you 
to have your heart opened even further and for him uh, to come in. For him to not be on the outside letting you hear his voice, but for him to also come in and be on the inside with the fellowship and the intimacy and the communion that this bride would know here. For them to eat together, for them to enjoy the things of their home together and the luxury of their home. He wants to be inside, not outside. And look at the words he addresses us with to make us excited and desirous to let him in. Look at what he says to the Christian. My dove, uh, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. He doesn't just say, let me in. He doesn't just say, it's, oh, it would be right if I was in. It's not mechanical. But he calls her not only his bride, but his sister. I am so near to you that you are not only my bride, but you are also my sister. It's like we've grown up together. I do not only know you as my wife. When we get married, we, we know the person and we have to trace back their history to know them. But Christ is saying here, though this is my bride, she's also like my sister. As though we've grown up in the same house and we're as close as a brother and a sister. If you're a brother and you have a sister and you love your sister and you protect your sister, you want what's best for your sister. And there might be other people you care about outside the home, but if someone, if you saw someone attack your sister, you wouldn't, there wouldn't even be a thought process. You would instinctively protect the sister. And Christ is presenting himself in this way. If you have a wife, how much do you love your wife? If you have a sister, how much do you love your sister? Put those together. And you start to understand the depth and the, the nearness and the intimacy in which Christ knows us. For he didn't just meet us and marry us. He formed us in the womb. He watched us every day of our childhood. He's followed us and pursued us as a sheep all the days of our life. My sister, my darling, sinful woman, slothful woman, unfaithful in devotion, unfaithful in obedience, unfaithful in your public witness to me, but you are, you, you are still my dove. You are my dove. You are my precious one. You are my harmless one. You are my vulnerable one who I will protect. The dove is white. The dove is pure. The dove is humble. It's a humble bird. That he calls us what he knows he's making us. And he gives us these terms of endearment. Though we are sinners, and he will tell us about our sin often, simultaneously, to telling us about our sin, he will tell us that we are his dove because that is what we are. Open, let me in, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. And how does she respond to that? She responds like many millions of Christians have responded throughout history and as we often respond ourselves even right now.
I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? These are excuses. She's either his betrothed at this point, his fiance, or his wife. There's disagreement about it, but uh, what we will not disagree about is that it's her duty to be ready for him to let him in, especially if she's heard him. How would how would you feel as a husband if the wife was in the in your in the house and all the doors had been locked and you've forgotten your keys and you're you stood there knocking for an hour and you it was obvious that she could actually hear you, but she just couldn't be bothered opening the door. That's what this picture is. These aren't legitimate excuses. What she's saying is, you've been away a long time, I'm getting on with my life, I do love you, but there's things to do here, and I've, I've, um, I've settled down for the night, I, I've, I've, I'm changed for bed, and in, in the world that they were living in, they always, they had to wash all of the time, because they didn't have clean streets like we did, I mean, the feet are covered in dust and they're dirty, and she's already gone through the hassle of making herself ready for bed. And she's already in bed, and she's warm, and she's pretty much asleep. And he says these wonderful words to her, and she says, I'm changed for bed, and I'm already washed, and I don't really want to get up right now. And that, that's just tough. How can I do these things? Uh, Christ is moving around the churches in the 21st century, in the Western world, and now and again, he, he lets us know that he's there. And he says, I was, I was here in power 200 years ago, where I converted millions and hundreds of thousands. I, my power was in your churches. And he comes near us, and he knocks, and he lets us know we're there. And this is the kind of thing we say to him. We make excuses, probably because we don't know how wonderful it would be if he was inside. We, we think... Um, it's fine for him to be at the door and to be in heaven. And we're just meant to get on with our lives and just believe uh, the doctrines of the Bible. And that is the Christian life. There are many people who believe that. You believe these five doctrines and you are saved. And that is the Christian life. And then you just try to do your best. We don't realize what we're missing because we've never really known it. We don't realize that Christ isn't pouring out the Spirit in inestimable power to convict America of their sin and to stir up and infuse his glory into his people. And he drops hints to us in sermons, in our conscience, in reading. He drops hints to us. You can have more. You can capitalize on this. You can increase your graces. And we have these excuses. You remember uh, Martha was in that position, and we're going to see that in our series in the Gospels soon, that Martha was in that position. When Christ was in her house, she had opened the door physically. He was in her house, and he was preaching in her house. And Mary was at his feet, hanging upon every word, with her heart flowing, and Martha had far more important things to do and was complaining that no one was helping her, 
doing these really necessary practical things. You'll notice that the excuses here are all practical, and our excuses 99 times out of 100 are usually practical excuses. Um, Martha says, well, I can't be in listening to Christ. I've got to, there's dishes to clean up here. And Mary lives here, and she's responsible too, and she's not even concerned that there's dishes to clean up. She wants to sit, and Mary's head is, her head is always in the clouds, and Mary's always just sitting there meditating and thinking and talking about God, and she never helps me. Martha was of a bad spirit. She had practical excuses and complaints, and um, you, that comes up time and time again in the, in, in the Gospels. Jesus told a parable about it. He, he invited people to a wedding feast, and it should have been a great privilege to come to it because a wedding feast is more important than your own daily routine. It's a special event. And the gospel is special. And when you're called to do something for Christ, it must always rise to the very top of the list, the moment he calls you to do it. And he says they all began with one accord to make excuses. And one said, I've just married a wife. I cannot come. What a great excuse that is. I think I've used that. Well, I just got married. Therefore, one had just bought an an oxen. And he said, I have to test the oxen. And another said, I've just bought a field. I didn't know there was going to be a wedding. I quite honestly bought a field and I have things to do with this field. I can't come. It all sounds so legitimate. I remember when I heard someone preach on that text and I heard the person say, well, can't you check the field the day after the wedding? And you, you bought the oxen without testing them first? And the, the, uh, the excuse that you've just married a wife, that doesn't really even make sense. Like, just go with your wife to the thing. I, these are just excuses, and they, we think they're plausible. And how many excuses do we make when the Lord touches us and gets our attention with something? With his word, or there's something in the church... There's something spiritual going on in the church. And you can invest more time in that spiritual thing. To pray together. Study the Bible together. Um, to, to spend time on your own with God. It doesn't even need to be the church. You can spend more time alone in communion with Christ. And invest in the only eternal thing you have. Everything else you have is going to be burned up. You need to invest in that relationship. And how many times does he say, come pray to me? How many times does he say, Open the word. Open it prayerfully. Spend a couple of hours with me in this word and I will speak to you. And how natural the excuses are. You don't know how busy I am. I have bought a field. I have an oxen. Something needs done with the car. There are family events. There are things that need fixed in the house. How many excuses we make because of our home our recreations, our possessions, our family, our children. Some of these bear some legitimacy. You know, we've just had a baby and the baby's taking up a lot of time. But we cannot forfeit our relationship with Christ for a baby. And we will fail in that. And the balance is not always due to an immediate choice that you can make. But when you see that it is... is, uh, doing something uh, and weakening the, the devotional life with Christ, a change needs to be made. 
It's not a good excuse to say to God, you gave us a child, therefore I don't have time to pray. That is not a good excuse. She says here, have you said it? Are you saying it now? Is this what you've been saying recently? I've, I've taken off my robe. There are things to be done. I, I've washed. There are important things to do. And someone else in the church will do that. And so, someone else will be devoted to Christ. I'll let someone else be the Martin Luther. It's not going to be me. Uh, I'm happy just attending church. and That's about it. Oh, friend. You're happy attending church. That wouldn't last long. Church isn't always a happy place. What about your devotional life with Christ? Her robe's too important and her feet have been washed and she doesn't want to let Christ in. So what does he do when we do that? Well, sometimes he will just leave us be. He leaves people alone. And that's an awful thing. I mean, uh, there's no discussion between us and God in that. If he decides to leave us alone for five years, we will be stuck with that. We will be trapped. Here he, he acts in grace. And in his grace here, he doesn't say, I'm offended. So I'll, I'll go somewhere where I am welcome. He, he pushes it further past our stubbornness and um, our irresponsibility. He, he passes it over our, our reluctance and our failure. To, to take him immediately, he pushes past it. It's a wonderful thing that Christ does that. And he does do it. He puts his hand by the latch of the door, verse 4. He extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him, or my, my soul was stirred for him. And then I arose to open to my beloved. So he put his hand through the door. And in, in these old... Um, Aramaic houses um, in the old world, these doors had a hole in the door uh, that you could, when you, it's like a gate that we have today, you come in and you come home and you put your hand through the hole and you unlatch the door. So there is a, a latch that you can just open the door and there would be a bar behind the door that someone on the inside could put up at night that locked the door so that even if you put your hand in and tried it, you couldn't get in. That, that's the way their doors worked. That's important here because this is basically saying that even when there's a refusal and, and Christ wants us to have the benefit of his presence, he will push us. And the voice comes, but then he moves his hand. There's the voice and the hand. And the hand goes through that opening in the door to try the door, to try the latch, and to show her, I want in. And that startles her, and, and she thinks, I better let him in. And it's, it's um, what happens on the latch of the door that's significant uh, for us. Because it says that her, her feelings leapt up for him. I arose to open to my beloved, verse 5, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I think the picture here is it's, this is an allegory. It wouldn't happen in real life, but it's telling us that when he put his hand on the door, that it left, it poured out myrrh on the door. It was on his hand, and he put it to try and open the latch, and then he removed his hand. So she saw him, 
And she thinks, I better get up. And she goes to the door and she can't see his hand anymore, but he's left a fragrance on the latch of the door. A very expensive fragrance, myrrh. Some people think um, she put myrrh on herself so that she would smell nice when she went to greet him. There's not many commentators that do think that. I suppose it's possible, but I've certainly never interpreted the text that way. It, it doesn't tell us that she does that. It says he put his hand on the door, and when she arose to open the door and touched it, her fingers dripped with liquid myrrh. And this is really important. I'll say a few things about this um, as we move towards the end. But th- this is important for us to understand. Let's try and understand this uh, uh, spiritually. Um, there is more here than the voice. There is a beautiful fragrance too. And that's telling us something about Christ. That it's perhaps like this, that it's not only his voice from the scripture, just as a bare commanding voice that we receive from him, but it always comes with a kind of presence or fragrance. And we have that in our natural relationships anyway. We don't only relate to each other just by voice. We have, we have five senses. And there's a whole picture that's formed of a situation that we experience. There's the nice sound of the voice. There's the sight of the face. There's the smell. And, and these things. So the, I think that's what's being communicated here. That when he comes, he doesn't just come with an informing voice that you hear. But he leaves something there that smells like, that has the fragrance of something beautiful. And I, th- I think that's really important. And because that's, that's the way that Christ works. He does not only speak, but he gives a, a sense of his presence that can be detected. And when the Lord rose from the dead, um, it is likely that there was a very distinct fragrance that was coming from him when he appeared to people in a resurrected form. He was, when he was placed in the tomb, he was anointed and embalmed in in a large amount of oils and spices that were very expensive. I can't remember how many pounds it weighed. You can maybe look that up after the service. But it was an unusually large amount of expensive Indian and Egyptian spices. He was literally saturated in it, and the cloth that covered him was saturated in it. Now, you imagine that if you put on perfume or a fragrance, it it lasts, even if you just put a little on him. Imagine you were bathed in it. When he rose, when he appeared to Mary, when he appeared in the upper room, it's not, it wouldn't be wrong for us to imagine that there was a beautiful smell. And the smell was there, because he didn't decay in the tomb. That's what that teaches. When Lazarus was in the tomb four days, there was a stench, it says. When he was in the tomb for three days, when the stone was removed, and when Peter and John went in to check, I'm sure that it smelled wonderful, expensive, glorious, pleasant. That there... um, 
not all things in Scripture are said. We have to infer them. God wants us to be treasure hunters in the Scripture. And we have to be careful with that, but we can easily infer that. And I am sure, why else would they anoint him like that? I am sure that the reason in God's providence he was anointed that way was so that when he appeared to the disciples and said, peace unto you, that it was teaching them that there's more to Christ than only hearing his voice. That when he's present, it's overwhelming. When Mary, um, when, when Mary of Bethany broke the jar of expensive spikenard from India and poured the whole thing over Christ, John's Gospel tells us that the whole house was filled with the fragrance. The, the point to all of that is that um, when Christ makes himself known and appears to these disciples, that they are experiencing the fullness and beauty and wonder and loveliness of Christ. He, it's not only his voice that is lovely, but his presence is lovely. It affects the soul. The soul can detect when the Savior is present. And there is a, a sense of love and peace and wonder and attraction and perfection that we see in the King. Because he is the Messiah, the anointed one. And if he's anointed, then he would smell anointed too. So when when he puts his hand through the hole here, he leaves something behind that she can detect. He doesn't just speak and go. He speaks. The response isn't quick enough. He leaves and she goes to the door, but she can smell the glory and the beauty and the kingship of Christ. And it makes her yearn for him. As you do yourself. People, even when they lose children, they keep garments that they smell. Because smell is such a powerful sense. It's amazing the way smell works. You can forget something for ten years, and then you smell something, and it's you're immediately transmitted back to the event. It's very powerful. She can smell that the king has been here, that he came with his beauty and his fragrance and his voice, and she, and she didn't grasp the opportunity when she had the chance. And the lingering of Christ afterwards it excites her. It it makes her long and it makes her repent. It makes her wish that she'd opened when she had the chance. She knows she was wrong. It's a wonderful thing. And she's, she smells that and it makes her long for him. She says that, I arose to open for my beloved. In verse 6, my beloved had turned away and was gone. Verse 6, my heart went out to him as he spoke, so I searched for him. And I told you earlier that yeah, it went out to him, but it can it can have the idea of the heart leaping. So she's sluggish when he first comes. She doesn't respond to the, the great words of love from Jesus and the opportunity to increase in her experience of him. And she's debating whether to get up. She sees his hand. And it's unmistakable that he's there and it startles her and she rushes to the door and he leaves behind this fragrance. And when she smells it, her heart leaps. Her heart comes to life. 
That's what happens to us. Christ is very wise in this. He doesn't just make it easy. He, this is a teaching mechanism that he calls us. He expects a response. The response usually contains some kind of sin in it. He leaves his beauty there. He lets us know, I've been here. I, I have been here. And even just the evidence of him being there makes her think, I should have taken it while he was here, and I wish he was here now. And her heart went out, and her heart leapt. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever heard Christ's voice to you? Have you ever heard him speak? I have called you by name. Fear not, Jacob. He speaks to souls. He really does. I know. Because in God's grace, I have experienced that many times. He speaks to souls. And when he does, it's like there's no one else in the universe apart from what's going on there. He, have you ever heard him? Has the word ever come to life? Have you, is the word a cold technical word? Or is this a word that when you're near it, it, it smells like myrrh? You can sense the presence and the spirit of Christ. Has your heart ever leapt up because a verse of scripture or a sermon or a time of prayer that you are having and you're reading of the word, it opens up to you and God speaks? Has your heart ever leapt and enlivened because of that? We read in the last two weeks, the road to Emmaus. And you remember what they said. It said, Jesus came beside them as they walked, as they were so far away from Jerusalem and so discouraged. He came beside them, like he does here. And he said, what are you speaking about? He says, open for me, my beloved. And they did not recognize him. And they discussed it with him. And they know there's something about the words of this man that is doing something to them, but it's hidden from their eyes. And then they sit down with him in the house and they see his hands breaking the bread as they eat together. Perhaps they saw the wounds in his hands. His hands like dripping with liquid myrrh, like in this song, and they see it. And then they realize it is Christ. And then he vanishes. Just like he does here. He vanishes. And what do they say? Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked along the way? They, they remembered when we were walking, there was something about what was going on. Our hearts were burning that we didn't know why. And now we know it's because it was him. He came near. He appeared in the fragrance of his resurrected glory. He showed himself and then he vanished. And they, they are excited and their hearts leap with life and joy and assurance. And they want him. They want to now live in a life of fellowship with him. Is that true of you, brother and sister? Can you ever say, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us? In your reading of the word or hearing of it or in your prayer, is it true of you? that your heart has ever burned with the love 
and the life and the energy and the fire of the presence of the most glorious person who exists. Your heart leaps when you see your wife or husband or your children. It moves your heart when they do certain things. But how much more for the greatest person who exists? Does it ever make your heart burn? Her heart burns. May our heart leap up. May may we look for these communications. May we search the scriptures and listen attentively to the preaching and seek the Lord's voice in it that our hearts might burn like the early church did. And when the heart of the church burns, then the Roman Empire burns because the church is burning within it. The the fire spreads like fire when our hearts burn within us. Has your heart burned? Well, as you look to hear his voice at the door, as you hear the knock, as you perhaps have made many excuses, as you see his hand and smell his fragrance, and as you realize it's him, will you make room in your life for him to speak? Will you make room when you're in here and when you're in your room? Will you make room for him? Will you create time for him to speak into that time? Will you pray seeking that voice? And will you open this alive word and book with a prayer and expect that Christ will speak to me through his word? Maybe we're asleep, but our hearts need to be awake. Make room for the voice and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May God imprint his word upon our hearts. Now let's remain seated and we'll pray before we sing Psalm 73c. Let us pray. O Lord our God, We pray that your word, even today, would take up residence in our hearts and that the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and his presence would enliven us. O Lord, give us a desire which is God-sent to seek the beloved, to seek the presence of Christ. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will sup with him and him with me. Give us a desire for Christ to be at our table and in our room. And may we come to know the power and grace of a near Christ and not one who is far away. In his name we pray. Amen.